0: You're listening to KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willitson-Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Next up, you've got the Ecology Hour. It's Running on Empty with Patrick Henschel. Good evening, everyone. To all of our regular listeners, you know that this show typically covers the global climate and environmental crises from different perspectives, scientific, political, economic, and often spiritual. Tonight, I want to spend some time getting to know, as much as possible through a radio program, the natural world, local to where we call home. For this, I'm sharing a recent discussion I had with Liam Erickson, a Wallala-slash-Annapolis-based naturalist, artist, and overall ecosystem enthusiast. Liam's knowledge derives from his academic foundation in entomology, the study of insects, his voracious consumption of peer-reviewed journals, and perhaps most meaningfully, the endless hours of field time he's committed to exploring the natural world right outside our doorstep. In the first half of our discussion, we explore Liam's nature-inspired artwork, woodblock prints that feel imaginative, organic, and timeless. And we review what it's like to experience local flora and fauna through the eyes of a naturalist. In the latter half of our conversation, we lean into Liam's impassioned familiarity with the indigenous cultures of Northern California, exploring some of the native mythology that is, frustratingly, as endangered today as the ecosystems that inspired them in the first place. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. You're listening to Running on Empty on KZYX, and I'm your host, Patrick Henschel. Hello, Liam.
1: Hi, Patrick. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. How are you? Not bad,
1: enjoying the rain, having a nice down day.
0: Absolutely. It's been raining cats and dogs the last few days, which my guess is our forest really needs it, right?
1: Yeah, there was a. I was starting to watch trees drop branches, and uh, you can kind of see the effects of the uh, drought spreading across some of the uh, mountain ridges. It was a little scary. I was definitely relieved to see the first rains of the year, first absolutely. real rain.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, man, for joining us um, uh, for this discussion. I've been wanting to chat with you for a while, and appreciate getting the time. You making the time. Um, you know, Liam. Maybe we can start with this question. You know, you call yourself a naturalist and an artist. I want to ask you, what do these words mean to you? And From your perspective, how does one feed the other?
1: Uh, Naturalist, I think, is, for me, getting the broad scope of the environment that I live in. Um, And it inflects the art, I think, to a certain extent, because once you start seeing all the relationships of how the flora and fauna interact, uh, it kind of helps me layer ideas and I also weave in um, the historical context of the Walala River and uh, the surrounding mountain ranges. Uh, so I don't think my art could exist without the naturalist side. Um, you know, if I think about something like Dicomptodon, the giant Pacific salamanders, um, I might include in an art piece some redwood branchlets to associate them with deep forest. Um, Or if I'm thinking about acorn woodpeckers, for example, I might weave in dug fur snags because they use those as their main source of granaries. So things like that.
0: And so Um, the medium, the actual medium of your art um, is really interesting right it's it's wood block prints and then you use that to actually impress on paper what is what is the exact medium of uh, presentation for your art
1: oh yeah so I do wood blocks and linoleum prints and basically you're carving out an image into a block and on the areas that have not been carved you roll ink and then press paper to the block and it gives you a relief print and uh, I've been doing that for about seven of the nine years that I've been up here. And um, most of the artwork does stem from the naturalist side of being up here.
0: And when you say up here, that's Annapolis, just south of yeah, Annapolis,
1: Annapolis and the coast up to like the Point Arena, uh, Manchester areas the, the, are the places that I'm most familiar with.
0: All the way through there, cool. So I I think it's clear to me how the naturalist work and your exploration of the world would affect your art. Does it then feed back the other way too? Do you find the artwork that you create um, influences the way that you then see the natural world when you move through and explore it?
1: I think it just makes me keep my eyes peeled. Yeah. you know, when you're looking at the natural world um, through the lens of an artist, I think you're looking at what makes a place unique. Mm. Um, You know, so many times when you're out in the field, you might find a rare plant that's in one canyon or two canyons. And um, I think part of being able to find those things is having my artist's eye. Um, but eye I think detail. it usually, yeah, not eye for detail. And also, uh, you know, the art needs to feel like it's place based because that's what I get my inspiration from. Mm. And, uh, you know, there are things that are incredibly unique to our watershed. Um, that you can't really find anywhere else. Uh, And it creates a lot of inspiration. I guess my short answer would be is that I think that it usually works as the naturalist inflects the art.
0: Absolutely. And it seems to me like it gives you a way to talk about the world uh, or, or to share your experience of the world with others in a way that may actually go beyond what is describable with words right because you're the the world around you impresses this experience and then (laughs) i've often found that if i see something i uh that that is awe-inspiring to me i get super excited about it right inside and then there's almost like this this uh diffusing of that excitement when i realize that it's like it's not something that can really be communicated or captured and conveyed with language, it's it's sort of an intensely personal experience. But then I know that there are uh, um, outputs like poetry that allow for one to sort of spark that same experience in another. And I'd imagine that maybe your art carries that same type of quality where it can can bring all of these different threads together in a way that would not otherwise be coherent for others and can create like a visual experience for them.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think it would be my version of storytelling uh, with a visual medium. Um, You know, when I look at a 17-foot diameter Redwood, um, I don't have words to describe the feeling that I have when I see it. Um, As awe-inspiring as it is. uh, And I think that art is definitely the closest translation I can get to it as possible. Um, But it just has so many venues you can explore. I mean, with the artwork and I never feel boxed into one topic over another. Um, And it also keeps, I guess one thing that does feedback from the art into the naturalist side is that it keeps me looking for more resource, resources and information you know you want to feed your creativity with uh, the most current information and your naturalist side needs the same same sort of influence
0: very cool and i think for anybody that's looking to build um, a relationship with the natural world that goes just beyond what they see in the news or what they even just visually see walking around. It's, it's one potentially very cool um, avenue to explore, art, poetry, all of that, a way to sort of share what the, the, the spark that comes when art reflects off of our own inner nature. It's a very cool thing. Liam, What yeah. you know, with, your, with your experience as a naturalist, as an entomologist, an ecologist, I can imagine that it is very different for you to walk through the world, um, the trees, the trails, uh, along the rivers. The little details that you see and pick up, I I can only imagine are gonna be very different from what I see. I mean, I'm familiar with some of the basic dynamics, water cycles, things like that. So I, I have like an idea but for you it must just be a richer experience. So I'm curious, can you share for our listeners, first of all, what areas are you prone to explore as a naturalist just as a starting point? And what's it like, like take us on a walk as much as you can. <laughs> we're a little bit confined by the medium here, but what is that experience like for you?
1: Well, for everybody that's in lockdown, uh, <laughs> yeah, <so good> experience. <laughs> I'll do my best to, uh, give your listeners some relief with um, the areas that I explore Um, most of it is mixed forest with redwood, tan oak, sugar pine um, and dug fir but there are also in the upper part of the watershed where I do most of my exploration um, it transitions into oak woodland and chaparral And, you know, there are beautiful grasslands in spring that have, you know, Calicortis flowers and Streptanthus, which is a beautifully rare uh, jewel flower. Looking through these landscapes, you know, I keep my eyes peeled for, you know, when you transition from forest, to grassland, what is the barrier between those two ecotones? Like in our area, you'll go from dense doug-fur forest, suddenly you'll hit grassland. And the limiting factor is something like serpentine soil, which contains you know, heavy metals that prevent most plants from being able to compete. So you're left with a different floral arrangement flora arrangement Um, and you know the other things that I look for are things like tree ages for cut stumps. You know we had timber harvests during the 1800s, the 1960s, and the 1990s and there are pockets of old growth still left behind but, as I move through a forest, I'm looking at the stumps to gauge the average age of trees, mm. you know on dry west facing facing slopes. You know, a lot of the cut stumps are not particularly wide in diameter, um, but they're incredibly old. Some of them are maybe four or five feet in diameter. But the growth rings mark them as being, you know, six, seven hundred years old. Um, wow. And then you so, move to a north that, That's a trip. Canyon. So just a,
0: as a pause for a second, I don't. I want you to keep going, but I just want to take a moment. Oh there. yeah. So because th- that means that this is a tree, that you're it was cut down, so you're able to see uh, how long it's been around, and you're seeing that it's basically been around for seven hundred years so it, this tree was around in like the 1300s if my math is right that's pretty crazy to think <laughs> yeah. about.
1: well I mean it's even crazier when you look at trees that are still around where it's like if your average estimate is 500 to seven years old for some of those cut stumps and then you see a living tree that's like 10 feet in diameter or 17 feet in diameter those are trees that are a thousand years old or older and you know they've witnessed a time in california where people were still flaking obsidian and they're here in the present where we have smartphones and airplanes (laughs) um you know california unlike a lot of the world doesn't have really old historical buildings. We don't have an Athens. We don't have ziggurats from the Middle East or Mayan temples. Um, So I think our real inheritance are in these trees. Um, And every single one of them looks completely different because it's being weathered, branches breaking off. They've gone through droughts, um, deluges, They've survived four human occupations from Spanish, Aboriginal, Russian, Western Anglo, and they're (laughs) still here. Um, So when I think about what's worth it in terms of conservation and protection, I really think about these trees. Um, You can't replace them. And the more we go through a drier climate, the more you're going to have size limitations, you know, to get to heights of 200 feet and above and to maintain that, you need a certain amount of water and turgor to sustain something like that. Um, and if you're in a drier climate, they're going to be bonsaid. So if you cut a tree down that is massive, you know, those giants, 10 foot diameter, very tall, uh, you're not going to get that back in the future. We're not going to go back to the wet climates that they originated in. Um, You know, most of the trees that are still around, that have been here for, you know, a thousand years, they witnessed like a mini ice age where they were getting plenty of water. And we're now going to a period where just this year, you know, the river is almost completely drained. There's Mm. barely any water in the river or the tributaries. Um, And that isn't just gonna be a one-off, that's gonna be a trend. So So the
0: trees are just not, even as they grow, they're not able to grow as tall, as large, simply because they can't get enough moisture to sustain that kind of growth?
1: Yeah, you need a certain amount of nutrients and uh, water to maintain Uh, that. Like When you see drought stricken trees here on the mountain, normally what you start to see with tree stress is a branchlet will die here, a a branchlet will die there, and then they'll start dropping major branches. And they usually die from the top down because you have to bring all that water to that tall canopy. Uh. And if you're in a drought, that's not possible. Right. Um, You know, there are areas where you can kind of see what it looks like when trees don't have access to water or nutrients. Like Mm -hmm. if you go to the serpentine areas and you see
0: what does that mean you say serpentine areas what does that mean
1: serpentine is a soil and rock type okay um they contain heavy metals okay and they don't have a lot of nutrients in the soil there's not a lot of calcium or nitrogen for trees to use and uh So they're a great example of what it looks like for trees to try and function under stressful conditions. Um, If you go to a serpentine area and you see an old growth redwood, it's not more than like 70, 80 feet tall, and the width is not more than like four or five feet. Um, But that tree could be a thousand years old, you just wouldn't know. It's bond side. Um, So
0: then, one of the one of the consequences of, you know, a rising average global temperature, uh, we see it in the fires that rage across California. This propensity for um, for dryness to lead to brush that's, you know, more combustible, uh, fires that are harder to put out. One of the other consequences is just. As if this is a long-term persistent trend, which it looks like it will be, just trees are just—they're not going to be able to grow as much to as the heights that they would have um, historically. It sounds like so. This is one of the enduring consequences of a changing climate: is this loss of tree canopy, just by by virtue well, of that temper- the temperature change alone. It sounds like.
1: And also, you're going to have a reduction of range distribution. Hmm. Um, There are already pretty decent papers and studies on the history of redwoods in particular, where they had expansions where they were across North America. They were circumpolar. There were some in Asia. And now they've been reduced to like tiny little slivers, um, you know, there's, there aren't a lot of redwood forests in the world. Um, so has the California redwood,
0: like, is that, has that, I mean, I may be stepping out of my boundaries a little bit here, but is that speciated Has it become ind- independent from other redwood types? And are, can you tell us like, what are the different, you know, at a high level, like what are other redwood types and where do California redwoods sit in the mix?
1: Well, I mean, we've got two species of, um, Sequoia relatives, we used to have, um, six across North America, um, but it's really just reduced down to the coast and the Sierra mountain ranges. Uh, and, you know, you and I had like talked about, um, carbon sequestration, sequestration, um, and, you know, For massive forests along the Amazon, that's a a major thing. But California's redwood forests, it's like individually those trees are good at sequestering carbon. Right. But there's so little of them left that it does not make a sizable difference. Um, Mm -hmm. And as we go into this drier future, you're going to see redwoods retract into the areas where they can sustain themselves, which are are north-facing canyons, where it's wet, it's cold, and they're not susceptible to storms because they're protected. Um, You know, at one point in California, we had avocados and elms, um, which need a lot of moisture, Mm. and that's probably where redwoods had the largest expansion Mm -hmm. um you know redwoods dogwoods and um chinkapins are probably remnants of much better time in california
0: Um, so what in your view has what's what drove the contraction from six species of redwood spanning north america down to the two that we have now that are contracting still, I mean, it sounds like obviously climate change is part of what's driving that now. Is that what, changing in temperatures and dryness and humidity, is that what drove the contraction of six species down to two or was that something else entirely?
1: Um, I wouldn't be able to speak for the larger group of redwood relatives, um, but certainly within California, yeah, the climate has certainly changed the population, and also um, to the north, they're cut off by a large serpentine belt, so they can't migrate any further north.
0: Ah, okay. Uh,
1: so you're kind of restricted and boxed in by both geology and um, temperatures, climate.
0: I wanna come back to a topic um, that you mentioned. Uh, you alluded to the fact that other parts of the world, they, they kind of draw their culture and their sense of heritage from uh, certain man-made landmarks, right? You referenced Athens and Rome and all of these, uh, these places globally and in California, because we don't, we, don't nec- we don't have the same kind of heritage, instead we have the natural world. We have our trees uh, and it's funny like I think a lot in the climate change um, community or whatever you want to call it the community uh, the um, this sort of eco activism eco defense community there's often this effort placed on Monet, figuring out a way to give economic value to the natural world. The logic being that if we can put a price on trees in terms of their impor- importance to us as people, it, the, the implication would be that we, we sh- there's, an, there's an economic calculus for not cutting them down, right? It's like ecosystem services. They serve a vital role uh, in terms of sequestering carbon. as as an example. And yes, they do. There is this sort of mechanistic um, role that they play in all of these different processes. And perhaps you could assign some sort of value to them uh, that's meaningful in an economy. I kind of understand the logic of that um, because you're kind of saying that, well, if industry doesn't care about environmental externalities, we're going to try to take those... um, those aspects of the environment and like bring it into their, um, their equations. But I think that there's an inherent danger there to taking the natural world and trying to put it into a math equation um, or into like a a profit and loss analysis. I think that what you alluded to is crucially important that these are, that this is a, a cultural heritage. It's, it's like a way of life. And so, you know, what about that? What about the intrinsic value of these trees um, and of these ecosystems? Can you speak more, whether it's the trees or the animals um, that live in the areas that you explore? What about that? What are the what are some of the animals um, that live here or that have lived here in the past and have since gone extinct? Uh, what does what conservation look like here and uh, on the coast? Uh,
1: What does conservation look like? Uh, Right now, I think conservation in its best form to me are conservationists working with landowners to either buy their land or Mm -hmm. get used. You know, most of our our entire watershed are in private timber company hands and uh, old families. You know, the Richards have some of the largest tracts of forest left on the Wallala, and the other part is divvied up to, like, MRC and GRT. Um, And I think a lot of the conservation is going to depend on the market for the wood that they're harvesting. Um, You know, if there's no demand for it, then there's not going to be the same kind of pressure to deforest our area. Um, But, you know, the things that have been here, um, we've had grizzly bears and wolves at one point, that was Mm. a part of like the 1800s. That wasn't even that long ago. Yeah, no. Um, You know, the world that we have now I mean, even separated by 100 or 200 years, it's just so different. Um, so I think my view on it is that we're just going through a series of succession, irreversible successions. Um, you know, at one point, I don't think we're going to have Salmanids on the Wallala River. Mm. You know, we just saw the drawdown of... Um, The river this year and if you reduce the river down to shallow pools which is what is currently going on uh, you make those fish vulnerable to being hunted out Um, it makes it easier to catch them for things like river otters or whatever birds eat the fish Um, and it's like if you get one year like that You might be able to survive it because you have adults out at sea that can come spawn in the following year. But if you get a succession of those years where you get drought after drought after drought, you're removing that multi-generational spawning. Um, So, you know, there are some things like, you know, the activism for protecting the floodplains and doing salmonid surveys Um, but I think people need to look at the larger trajectory of where things are going. Um, You know conservation to me as a naturalist is like most of the world has cut over their forests and turned it to ag land and that's global. We're really really lucky as Californians to have a landscape and uh, native plants and animals that are pretty similar to what we've had for the past five, 10,000 years. Um, You don't get that anywhere else. So I think that's my biggest main driver in trying to communicate with the public about what's worth protecting. Um, You know, when I go off into preservation ranch, um, also known as Buckeye Forest, mm-hmm. and I'm documenting plant diversity, insect diversity, um, also marking where all the old growth trees are. Um, you know, that's my version of inheritance. And I'm yeah. watching some things come and go. Like there's a beetle called Mm scaphonotus and it eats snails and slugs Mm -hmm. and they require a pretty moist, humid habitat. And, you know, five or six years ago, I would see hundreds of them flood the basins of water that I have around the cabin. And in the past two or three years, I've slowly watched the numbers of them dwindle to almost nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's similar to like the reduction of redwood distribution where it's like, I don't think you'll see things like that go extinct, but you'll see a reduction. It'll be a contraction.
0: And so then species Um, that rely on those trees may go extinct. They may be rugged or, you know, durable enough to, Make it through, but other animals w- will not be at, right, and that so yeah. then, th- then that is that's the essence of us being. It's it's funny, like the sixth mass extinction is what they talk about. We're in the midst of the sixth mass extinction, and I think some of the numbers I, I read, it's like one hundred and fifty species go extinct every day, but I, I think that number is like baffling, because often when I think of a species, I'll think of like a cheetah or a tiger or a lion, right? But in reality, there are so many, like, if you, I don't know if it makes sense to call them almost like micro species, like different variations of beetle, you might go from having this many different variations down to having this many. And that's happening every day as a consequence of these, um, these changes on the planet.
1: Well, I mean, it's how quickly things are changing, uh, combined with how adaptable Hmm. each Species is, you know, um, they have studies from the Librea tar pits uh, mm. covering beetle collections, fossilized beetle fragments. And we have the same species that we've had for 40,000 years. Um, so it's clear to me at least that. Uh, during those 40,000 years, which did have massive droughts and massive wet periods, uh, that those species were able to hide out during stressful periods enough to make it to the present. Uh, And I think that's kind of what we're going to have now. Um, There will be species loss, um, but, you know, there will be little refugia ac- across california at least in our backyard
0: and the ones that are lost they they don't just like come back i mean everyone lost is one that is lost and really <laughs> yep. Right. Yeah. It's not you don't just get that sort of variation in the gene pool again <laughs> to produce the same thing that natural selection can act on in the same way. It's like that is that's a snapshot in, in in the grand history of time. Uh it's it's not it doesn't something else will happen or you know step on the scene, but that particular creature gone gone gone. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, you're already kind of seeing it in California. Uh, I can't speak for the woolala itself, but, um, you know, there are publications that are talking about um, in Southern California, because of rising temperatures, Hmm. alpine butterflies were going higher and higher in elevation until they went extinct. Um, They were trying to compensate for the temperature increases with elevation, but mountains don't rise up in infinity. Um, so right. they tapped out. And another example would be like uh, Lake Tahoe used to have pikas, which are these little tiny mammals that look like uh, m- mice with no tail. Mm-hmm. And um, they're extinct from Lake Tahoe now. And that mm-hmm. was within our, our mm-hmm. tiny I'm 32 years old and I witnessed the transition of Tahoe going from having pikas to not having any at all. Um, And it's like, that's the other thing about being a naturalist is that you're documenting things because you're not quite sure what the future is going to hold or how much of what you have is going to hold on. Um, Like when I'm doing my species list, of insects for what I find in preservation ranch, um, in the back of my mind, uh, part of me is looking at the list and thinking, how many of these things are gonna be here 10 or 15 years from now? Um, yeah. And it's kind of one of those things where time will tell. Uh, the greatest tool that I have at my disposal is observation over time um, and I think we're in the middle of that right now.
0: Yeah. So I know one of the other areas of interest for you is history, human history, and particularly this area. Um, I know you've, you've studied and read about and learned about the, um, the Pomo people here, or the indigenous people that were here long before any uh, Any of European descent, could you tell us about your experience there, and you know if you want to talk about land use or land impact, what role have those people played historically and um, what's brought us to this point?
1: Um, so with both Pomo and Yuki, my interest was hmm. spurred because when I was in school our local history wasn't really covered that well, Hmm. you know, like our teachers taught us about large tribes in like the desert Southwest, you know, Navajo. And, um, they covered a little bit of Miwok, um, but not a lot for the rest of California. And it made me realize how large of a gap I had in my own knowledge of who was here before and are still here. Um, And it started me going through papers and reading stories. Like, you know, some of the folklore stories that they have are just so incredibly imaginative and inspiring. It's like when you read any book, um, when you read the description of a character it gives you a mental image of what they look like. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. It's un- and uncontrolled. Like, you know, I'm sure that we all had our version of um, Harry Potter.
0: I was in just our thinking head. about Harry Potter. And then they make a movie. Then they make a movie and your your mental image is forever um, overtaken by the movie image, which is sort of sad if you think about it.
1: Exactly. That was the best reference I could think of that yeah. everybody could get. Um, yeah, yeah, And... Same is true for a lot of the local stories, and I think what makes it even more impactful is that the landscape that all these characters um, dwell in is the landscape that I live in now. Um, And I thought that...
0: (laughs) That is fascinating.
1: On top of being inspired by that, um, it just presses you to pursue that knowledge. And... You know, we're not that far from the Kashaya, and our watershed was split between two groups of Pomo Mm -hmm. Kashaya and Southern Pomo. Okay. And Pomo is not a tribe, it's a language grouping. Okay. Um, Your tribe was whatever village you came from, and the largest ones here were places like Potol or Hibui or Nakawi. And um, you know, they played such an important role in shaping the landscape for the duration that they were here. You know, they did burns across the grasslands, and that selected for things like bulbs and tar weeds like mm-hmm. uh, Hemizonia Madia. And um, you know, that is just such a cool thing to think about because we're now in an era where we're having these super fires because of all this unburned fuel. Mm. And when I think about how we're gonna maintain uh, our land now, I think back to the Aboriginal times where it's like, if you're doing consistent burns, you're never building up enough fuel to have a massive wildfire. you're constantly reducing the fuel load. Um,
0: so is that so, why they were burning? Was it, was it just like, a, was it forest management basically? Was that the intention behind it or was it something else? The intention was
1: to select for preferred foods. Hmm. Um, even the hottest fires don't burn below five inches underground. So if you have plants that have bulbs, they're safe. Um, and if you have a light fuel load and you do it before plants germinate with the first rains, then the worst that's going to happen is that the seeds get scorched, um, but not destroyed. Um, so there was a purpose to it. And also almost all the villages were in grasslands with springs or oak woodland where, um, there wasn't a huge risk of fires because of this burn management. God. You know, nobody had villages in deep redwood forests um, until they were forced to by, like, the Spanish and Russians. Um, Pre-Western occupation, nobody was living in the forest.
0: Um, okay, so what, what time period are we talking about then?
1: Um, so they had been around for about 3,000 years. Um, And most of that knowledge is from uh, sediments at Borax Lake up by Lake County. And um, the oldest occupations in our area, actually north of our area, were the Yuki. And they've probably been here for 8,000, 10,000 years old. Um, So... That's kind of the of ber- occupation that was here. And by the time they were documented by Westerners, their population had reduced to a small area along the Eel River to the coast. Um, and the language is now completely gone. And, uh, you know, I'm amazed that we have as much knowledge as we do considering um, everything that happened here historically. Yeah. You know, asking for culture to cling on through Spanish occupation, Russian occupation, and Western Anglo occupation is just insane. Um, you know, we have all these old ranch family names around here, but their predecessors were... The Kishaya and Southern Pomo, um, you know, the transition between one to the other was brutal. Um, so, yeah, that is part of the, the history of this place. It's not all happy.
0: It's not. It's not. And so then when you think back You know in terms of the the culture that you talked earlier about uh some of the mythology uh (laughs) that is fascinating for you because it actually all takes place here in our local surrounding area can you give any examples of that uh, and how it's inspired you and i would imagine that some of it's made it into your artwork too
1: Absolutely. has <laughs> definitely made it into my artwork. Um, so the local myth that I think immediately comes to mind is the uh, pine giant. And people used to climb these tall sugar pine trees, which is very dangerous mm-hmm. to get the pine nuts. And so it created this taboo where you could not go out for the six, first six months of your wife's pregnancy to collect pine nuts and so the story is that if you climb one of these trees during that time the pine giant would come and grab you and then drown you (laughs) Uh, Wow! and you know those pine trees are still here they're called sugar pines pinus Mm -hmm. lambertiana um And some of them get to be like 200 feet tall and climbing them. I can't even imagine climbing them, but it would be incredibly dangerous. So I think some of the storytelling is around, you know, keeping you safe um, and also be there to be a father to your kid. Um, And then, you know, a lot of myths center around coyote and he's one of the main central figures and i can't call him a god or a spirit he's just an entity huh. um and it's like when you're hiking through grasslands right. and you see a Cody, it's like that mythology overlays with the present um and i think that that's what i love so much about it is that you know each of us walks out into the wilderness with our own individual connection to it. And it'll never be replicated in anybody else. Um, But I think we all can share that adoration and also inspiration. You know, somebody hundreds of years ago was doing storytelling based on the landscape that we're all still walking around in. Um, I'm trying to think of like other
0: when you, you mention Coyote, I can't help but think of a book um, called Coyote Blue. Have you ever heard of that?
1: No, I haven't.
0: It's a great book from just a hilarious um, satire author uh, called Christopher Moore. And it's funny. I, I don't think that it, that it references um, a Native American population. And I'm kind of going on memory. I don't, I don't think it was in California. The main character starts out in Santa Barbara. And he's got this very like buttoned up professional life. I think he's I think he's an insurance salesman, like a life insurance salesman. And but historically, um, that's what he's from the Crow Tribe. I can't remember where from, um, but but it was called like the Crow Tribe. And then Coyote, which is, so that's his heritage, right? But somehow through just life events, he ends up. He's like thirty years old and he's working in Santa Barbara as an insurance salesman. But his whole ancestry and heritage is um, Native American from the Crow Tribe and uh the coyote just coyote not the coyote coyote just starts messing with him (laughs) and the whole story follows this sort of ancient myth coming into the present there's this really cool convergence and it's just a hilarious tale that unfolds so for any listeners that are looking for a good read um coyote blue by christopher moore and he's got other books too i think you'd dig it too
1: i'd have to read that i'd love to uh i think you would like that well i think that's the takeaway is that Actually, I think the way you put it was perfect, which is um, the convergence of the past with the present. Um, you know, in the same way that we were talking about um, not being able to replace yeah. things they're gone, um, you can't replace culture once it's gone.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I think it's worth facilitating the spread of what we do have in that local mythology as much as possible. Um, You know, I'm sure I'm not the only one who went through school and had no idea what vibrant history we had and brutal history. Um, And if it weren't for pursuing it, I don't think I would have known anything about our history if I didn't pursue it on my own.
0: Um, It's definitely not the cornerstone of modern education. Uh, I went to uh, private schools in Los Angeles. And it's just it's touched on. But that's just it. It's touched on. It's not like a core focus. And why not, right? These are the stories of our of the people that were here before us. This is like this is their land um, historically not not to create like separation i mean there i believe that ultimately it all when it all rolls up we're all one i do feel that way but i think that out of respect and and consideration like it it we should be very mindful of um the the local history that inhabits that that is core to where we live and i just know personally from growing up it's like yeah that was not there so you better have your own interest in that um, to propel you. And it it would be cool if education systems wove that in more and more, I I wish they would.
1: Well, I think it also is educational in terms of looking at the um, systemic inequality that we still have. Yeah. Because when you read about the history of this area, you see how economically tenuous things were for the past couple hundred years Um, and you know what role the West had to play in that and you know I don't know how appropriate it is on this show to go into but it's like um,
0: people should know
1: Well, back when Western Anglo-Americans were coming in in the 1840s and 50s, um, they were forcing Native Americans off their land and forcing them to be ranch hands Mm -hmm. and being paid not in money, but in alcohol. Um, And even when religious groups came through they promised to remove alcohol from the community. They actually continuously brought it in. Um, and on top of that, it's like, I can't imagine what it would be like to be forced from your home.
0: Huh.
1: And uh, it was burned and turned into agland and uh, timberland, and there were people from the tribes that tried to return home and they were literally beaten and clubbed to death. Mm -hmm. Um, and those are the things that like nobody taught us in school. Right. Um, I think there, there are subjects that are worth talking about. It's like, you don't see orchards here because it was a friendly transition. Um, you know, that was forced, uh, So I think my interest in our history is both in going for a quality and making knowledge accessible. I think that's really what it's about. And also, I think the art plays a small factor in that where it's like, it's hard to ask people to go out and do in-depth research. Yeah. So meeting them halfway in a visual medium definitely helps um, because you get to select the things that are really beautiful or um, unique and you get to highlight them with an image and uh, you get to let the viewer decide what it means to them. Um, And hopefully they get to do, it inspires them to do their own research, that's what I really hope
0: I think it's a sound hope. I think it's it it makes a lot of sense and it rem- when you say that it reminds me of a film I just saw a couple of days ago that just came out called I Am Greta and it is a uh documentary about Greta Thunberg's life. She's a Swedish climate activist I've referenced several times before on this show and By now, I think everybody the world over has heard of her at some time or another. And she's young, She's I think she's 17 still, maybe. I think she's 17 now. But when she got started, she was 15. And she's basically made her whole uh, life in recent years about standing up and challenging political leaders, individuals, as adults, as a whole population um, to stop lying. Uh, about climate change and about the ecological devastation that the world is experiencing right now. And, you know, when you talk about the fact that we don't hear about our brutal history in America in the textbooks, that is a form of lying. It It is lying pure and simple. It's a distortion of the truth. It's obscuring the facts in order to serve an agenda. And that's exactly what Greta is fighting against And the reason I bring her up is when you ask her, what should I do uh, about climate change as an individual, her answer is always the same. It's always quite simple. She says, you know, there's all sorts of activities you could do. Uh, There's there's ways to change your behavior. You could switch your diet, obviously, is a huge contributor. You know, meat consumption is just patently terrible for um, for a whole range of environmental issues. And she goes down the list, but then she says, fundamentally, the, the one thing you can do and that I would urge you to do is learn about what's going on. Really learn, understand it. Don't shy away from it, get into it and, and don't turn your eyes away when it gets to be painful because that is what's happening. And it's only with the, the sort of the light of truth and, and seeing things as they really are that there's any hope um, that we can experience things differently enough to motivate change, a change a real change in our behavior that persists and is is um, sustainable and not fleeting. So I think that that sounds very much in line with what you're saying, that you know you're hoping that people will learn, um, be motivated to learn on their own. And if your art can inspire that, um, then I think it's done something great. I want to just uh, ask, my,
1: <laughs> my,
0: I was just going to say, I, that's my
1: ignorant hope is that, yeah. that it reached even a couple of people. Um, I would consider progress. Um, if you have knowledge and you don't turn a blind eye, then I think it opens the door to actually addressing the issues at hand, um, both socially and, and environmentally. Yeah. Um,
0: which actually is a good segue, um, uh, Liam. I want to ask for our listeners, we're about to um, finish up, but I want to make sure we cover, how can listeners find your art? How can they purchase it if they want to? Where can they go?
1: Um, if you want to find me or purchase artwork, um, I'm on Instagram under the name Kane Hallett, um, which is C A N E H O W L E T. Um and just DM me, and I'm always available to talk. And uh, it doesn't have to be about artwork or, or the like. It can be about anything. Um, you know, it's accessible to anyone who, who comes across it.
0: Great. Great. And uh, for our listeners, you can also email runningonemptyshow at gmail.com, and I'll happily connect to you. Um, I'll happily connect you with Liam. Liam, I got Thank one you. last I question for you before we it. close. Close. My last question. Uh, you've been basically uh, answering this through the whole conversation, but if you could just give us like a, uh, you know, the, the, the quick kind of snippet. Why do you do what you do?
1: Because I love the world that surrounds me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm just. Enamored with exploring and seeing beauty that doesn't require my adoration to exist. Um, you know, the most beautiful moments in my life, I think, were probably alone and somewhere in the forest around the Walla Walla River. Um, you know, that to me is probably the biggest driving factor in everything.
0: Beautiful. Thank you, Liam. Thank you for your time, for the conversation. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon.
1: Thank you, Patrick. You have a
0: good day. You as well. Bye-bye.